Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Flint in the program Save the Nation on ADH TV. The program tonight is an interview with Tony Abbott. It was recorded before the news from London. That news has come as a shock to so many of us because we all regard it as a personal loss of a wonderful lady. I first heard her speaking when I was a boy and she delivered her address from Cape Town in South Africa when she turned 21, when she said, my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be dedicated to your service and the service of the great imperial family to which we all belong. That was a promise, which then was incorporated into the oath she made at the coronation and which she honoured on every day of her life. In so many ways, Elizabeth was a model constitutional monarch. She fulfilled the two obligations, the two roles of a constitutional monarch. That is firstly, providing leadership beyond politics. And secondly, acting as a constitutional guardian, which she did in relation to the United Kingdom, to Australia and all of her realms. She acted as a wonderful person. She acted with great dignity, with charm, and with a, a sense of humour, as we saw when she opened the London Olympic Games and appeared to be jumping out of an aeroplane. She was an absolutely wonderful constitutional monarch. She will be sorely missed. But now we have a new sovereign. We have a king, King Charles, and he is no doubt sorrowful over the loss of his dear mother. But we Australians have very much two things to say, I think, in this regard. We must say and believe in advance Australia fair and also God save the King. Well, my guest in this programme is the Honourable Tony Abbott, AC, Companion in the Order of Australia a Rhodes Scholar, earning two blues for boxing at Oxford. You also studied for the priesthood, and I believe that when, uh, when a priest attacked you over one of your social policies as a minister, you said the priesthood gives someone the power to concentrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, but not the power 
to convert poor logic into good logic, which I thought was rather, rather brilliant. You managed both a concrete plant and Australians for constitutional monarchy. You've been a journalist, political advisor, and despite what I read in Wikipedia, I think you were one of the best health ministers in Australia, and that's been confirmed by some Americans when you released a policy in relation to that matter. You brought the coalition back to power in 2013 with really a cumulative landslide. You've done enormous charity work, firefighting, life-saving and real work in the Indigenous communities. And you have the rare virtue, the very rare virtue among the political class of modesty. You've always kept very quiet about your good works. Your thinking and writing has been formidable, both here in Australia and internationally. I remember in relation to your writing, I once offered to write you a draft for a speech you were delivering to an organisation which I'd arranged, and you said, no, Dave, I'm not very good with drafts, and you wrote it yourself, which is rare among the politicians. There is, however, one moment of truth, Tony. Your biggest weakness in politics, but not, I would think, in purgatory, is that you are too generous in relation to forgiving your enemies, which I, I brought to your attention, but you have ignored completely, so you continue to forgive your enemies. I first met you, it was 20 years ago, when you were, over 20 years ago, well over 20 years ago, when you were Executive Director of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. And since then, both in Parliament and in politics, you have been probably the monarchy's fiercest defender, to use a term you used to describe ACM. So may I begin my first question, and that is, Tony, why are you such a fierce defender of the constitutional monarchy? David, thanks for having me, and thank you for that very generous introduction. I wouldn't want to disagree with uh, you because it would be impolite to do so, but I should just say that uh, I'm more than capable of being bitter and twisted with the best of them. <laughs> but I find if I am publicly bitter and twisted about anything, uh, it's uh, not really to my credit. So uh, uh, that's uh, why I try uh, to be a reasonably good member of the ex-Prime Minister's Club. Uh, look, I support the Crown in our Constitution because it's been good for Australia, David. Uh, so it's really respect for our country, for its history, for the way it's evolved, which makes me a supporter of the Crown and the Australian Constitution. Um, when the First Fleet came ashore and toasted the King uh, and hoisted the flag back on the 26th of January 1788, uh, they were doing so under a monarchy. And every day of our national existence, uh, first as colonies, uh, then as the Commonwealth of Australia, has been under the crown. Uh, it hasn't stopped us evolving into the wonderful, free, independent democracy that we are. And while I don't say we're perfect, I don't see any problem with contemporary Australia that is going to be improved uh, by getting rid of the crown. So that's why uh, I support the crown in our constitution. 
Uh, I also think that constitutional monarchy is a is is a very good system of government. Uh, it's a system which has evolved over time. Um, it's evolved over the centuries, uh, over the couple of centuries uh, that we've been here. Uh, it's continued to evolve, and uh, the crown in our Australian constitution is somewhat different from the crown uh, in the unwritten United Kingdom constitution. Uh, our crown is effectively worn by the Governor-General 99% of the time. Uh, but because the Governor-General is representing the Queen, uh, he or she is a very different kind of individual um, than a, a President, either a President uh, elected by the politicians or a President uh, elected by the people. Um, I think we are much better off with a Governor-General chosen like a judge uh, at the apex of our system uh, than with a president chosen like a politician at the apex of our system. So it's been good for Australia. It's been part of who we are and it is an excellent system of government. That's why I support it. You mentioned the Constitution. The Constitution uh, is essentially, and it states this in the preamble to the Act, the Constitution is an agreement between the people of the several states mm -hmm. to unite in an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the Crown and under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So why is it advantageous that a section of the people should be specially recognised in the Constitution? It's not a history book. It's just a framework for an agreement to establish this federal commonwealth. Look, that's a fair point, David. Uh, and if for whatever reason uh, we couldn't agree on a suitable form of Indigenous recognition, uh, I would be disappointed. But uh, we are a wonderful country as we are. If we can, though, uh, agree on a suitable form of Indigenous recognition, I think that would be an advantage. Um, you might remember that John Howard first promised uh, to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution uh, in the lead-up to the 2007 election, and it's been bipartisan policy ever since. Uh, my point is that while I'm in favour of recognition, it's got to be the right recognition, not the wrong recognition, and any form of recognition which uh, significantly changed our system of government uh, or created two classes of citizen uh, based on race, I think would be a big, big mistake. That's why I'm not a supporter of this so-called voice, um, because uh, uh, as outlined by the Prime Minister, uh, this voice uh, will be a big change to the way we governed, um, uh, a big and ramifying change to the way we're governed uh, and the idea of having what Malcolm Turnbull once described as a third chamber of the parliament um, elected uh, on a race-based franchise doesn't strike me as uh, a very good way to remove racism uh, from our governance structures. So, so look, uh, I, I, I'm, I am very, very much opposed to Indigenous recognition by way of a voice, but I would certainly be uh, more than happy to consider other forms of Indigenous recognition. And 
when I was Prime Minister, what I was attracted to uh, was inserting into the preamble uh, words like this, um, one indissoluble federal commonwealth with an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character under the Crown. Well, that wouldn't cause the same problems, but are you, are you fearful that that may well be used as ammunition by activist judges to give additional interpretations to the Constitution which were never intended? I, I accept that activist judges can find all sorts of handles for uh, unintended change, and I absolutely uh, share uh, the concerns that so many people have uh, about unelected and unaccountable judges mm. effectively usurping the role uh, of elected and accountable members of parliament and, and, and ministers. But, and, and you're obviously much more of a lawyer than I am, David, but I would be interested to see uh, what uh, legal experts uh, make of the potential for preambular change to be exploited by activist judges. Now, um, if we were, as I say, to insert into the preamble uh, these, uh, I think, undeniable facts that we do have an Indigenous heritage, uh, we did have a British foundation, uh, and we are a country with an immigrant character. Uh, personally, uh, and, and I'm a Bush lawyer at best, personally, uh, I think it's pretty unlikely uh, that even the most activist judges would be able to convert these undeniable facts uh, into weapons against the policy and the legislation of the government of the day. But... Uh, as I said, I, I, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, uh, but it would seem to me that that is a much safer form of Indigenous recognition than setting up uh, what Turnbull described once as the, a third chamber of the parliament uh, based on race. Uh, I mean, it will gum up government, which is already pretty gummed up as things are, and uh, it will insert into our system uh, an additional level of race-based separatism, and I think we've got far too much uh, separatism right now uh, without something like this. Still on matters constitutional, I see that the Solicitor General has done what most of us predicted, found that uh, Mr Morrison's curious accumulation of portfolios was not unconstitutional. <laughs> the problem was, of course, that uh, he didn't make it public. That wasn't a a constitutional issue, but the solution is very simple. You just legislate to require all appointments to be made public by entering them in the Gazette. Why have another inquiry into this? What's the purpose of that? that that's a very good point, David. And look, uh, I, I find what the former Prime Minister did uh, pretty inexplicable. Uh, certainly once you go beyond his, uh, if you like, uh, uh, joint holding of the health portfolio uh, from the start of the pandemic. Uh, I, I found it uh, uh, 
unconventional and uh, it would have been uh, uh, much better if uh, more orthodox practices had been pursued. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we know exactly what's happened. Uh, we know that it's not, it wasn't illegal, it wasn't unconstitutional, uh, it, it was unconventional. And of course, uh, Scott Morrison is no longer the Prime Minister. So the person who was guilty of this political misjudgment uh, in having himself sworn in as co-minister in various portfolios without telling the public and without, in most cases, even telling the other minister. Uh, the person who was guilty of this uh, significant lapse of judgment um, is now sitting there quietly on the backbench. So I certainly think that further inquiry into this uh, is, uh, is, is, is really uh, a bit of a witch hunt, mm. frankly. Now, now uh, I'm more than happy, indeed, I think we absolutely need uh, a very thorough going inquiry uh, into uh, the way all levels of government in Australia reacted to the pandemic. Um, I think that's absolutely essential. Um, but to uh, delve ever more deeply into one very small aspect uh, of the overall governmental response, I think is overkill at best. Well, I agree with you strongly that there should be an inquiry into how governments handle the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we know, instead of following traditional practice, that is looking after those who are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And this virus was very convenient mm -hmm. on that point because we knew who was vulnerable. We didn't know in relation to certain other mm -hmm. pandemics that have come to Australia. And... What they should have done, it was so obvious, common sense and precedent would have told them that they should have looked after the vulnerable and let the rest of us get on with our lives, just it, advising us to take certain precautions but not to go into the madness that they went into. And at worst, to do that, they took advantage of the checks and balances which are just no longer there in relation to making regulations. In... in in colonial times in Australia, it was normal for the power to make significant regulations to be with the governor in council mm -hmm. and for that to go through a process where things could be checked, the public would know that there was a good argument for this and we always had a system that these would be disallowable by either house. Mm -hmm. And in those days, Queensland still had a a second house. So it was a very good system, but all of that has been swept away, and that's also something which should be considered. There's one other thing that I wanted to know whether you think a Royal Commission should look at, and that is, should they also be looking at the responsibility of Beijing for this virus, for not informing the world of it, for letting it escape from a effectively a a laboratory under the control of the military, should there be some inquiry into that or should the inquiry extend to that, but also to how we can have compensation from Beijing for the terrible damages we suffered as a result of that? Well, I think there are two separate issues here, David. One is the Australian response to the pandemic and the other is uh, how the pandemic actually started. Now, I would certainly like 
as far as is humanly possible for us to get to the bottom of how this damn thing originally happened. Uh, did it emerge from a wet market in Wuhan, as we originally thought, or was it in fact an engineered virus that somehow escaped uh, from the uh, laboratory there in Wuhan? I do think it is a very strange coincidence uh, that uh, this thing emerged uh, from the very city where all of this research uh, was taking place. And we all know that uh, laboratory accidents do happen from mm. time to time. And so, so I think there's a, a plausibility in the laboratory leak uh, hypothesis. Um, obviously, the Chinese government is doing everything it can uh, to resist that investigation and uh, it seems to, uh, t at least to a large measure, have thwarted uh, the World Health Organization investigation. Uh, I haven't actually had a chance to read in depth um, the, uh, uh, the book that's been put out on this topic, but certainly I think a lot of us do want to get uh, to the bottom of that. Frankly, though, David, I think uh, for Australia, uh, the most important thing is try to work out um, whether it was uh, our response, the overreaction that I think, um, and, uh, and try to ensure that next time something like, like this happens, because there will be uh, further pandemics, whether it's in a year, a decade or a century, there will be further pandemics. I think we owe it uh, to our uh, successors to look at how we handled this thing and uh, try to decide uh, what actually, uh, with the wisdom of hindsight, should have been done and what possibly should not have been done. Now, I think that um, in the early weeks of the pandemic, when we weren't sure exactly what it was we were dealing with, um, fairly drastic measures uh, could have been justified. But certainly... Uh, by April, May of 2020, it was pretty obvious that uh, this was a virus that was really only going to kill the very old, the very sick, or the very, very unlucky. And uh, from that time onwards, at the very least, uh, we should have been completely focused on protecting the vulnerable as far as mm. possible, uh, while encouraging other people uh, to live their lives while taking such precautions as they personally thought were necessary. Uh, it's interesting, uh, late last year I was in London and I happened to run into the Swedish ambassador and I congratulated him on uh, being a representative of the only government in the Western world which hadn't panicked in the face of COVID. Mm. And he said to me, he said, look, uh, uh, we just copied, completely copied the UK pandemic plan the difference was uh, we followed the UK plan, uh, whereas the UK threw it out the window uh, at the start of the pandemic, as indeed we did here in Australia. Now, as health minister in the Howard government, David, uh, I was uh, instrumental in the formulation of early versions of the pandemic plan. And uh, I did happen to browse through the August 2019 version of the pandemic plan after the pandemic had hit, I hasten to add. And that plan was very much still the plan 
as it stood when I was the health minister with a few additional tweaks. Uh, yes, um, there was provision in it uh, for, for some short-term border closures, uh, international borders, mm. not state borders. Um, well, that was there, justified. There, there, that there, was justified. There, there, there was certainly provision in it uh, for a massive ramping up uh, of the hospital system um, and uh, a, a massive effort going into uh, the protection of people in nursing homes, retirement villages uh, and, and such like places. But there was never, never uh, any envisaging uh, of locking people in their homes for weeks and months at a time, um, uh, closing down large sections of the economy uh, for weeks and months at a time. None of that, none of that. Uh, and uh, when you actually look at the pandemic, uh, I think that uh, the disease itself uh, did some damage. Uh, the policy to deal with the disease has done massive damage. It's done massive economic damage. I think it's done serious health damage uh, in terms of the cancers, the heart disease, the mental illness uh, that went untreated for the best part of two years. And I think it's done very considerable psychic damage. Um, we are not uh, grizzly bears that go into hibernation uh, as part of our nature. Uh, and this idea that was being bandied around back in March and April of 2020, that we could put the economy into hibernation uh, for six months and then we'd just snap out of it and go on as if nothing uh, had, had, had happened. Well, that's not how human beings are. Uh, it, it's, it's not just the long-term financial costs of this pandemic, which are vast. It's the long-term psychic costs of this pandemic, uh, which in some ways are even greater. Uh, the changes to our work practices, um, the changes to our work ethic, um, the long-term disruptions uh, to so many things, including uh, the lives of families um, who weren't able to have funerals, uh, weren't able to have weddings, weren't able to, to, to live their life. Uh, I think we'll be, we'll be dealing with the consequences of this for a very long time indeed. Yes. When, uh, when we had an audience recently with the government, you might remember you weren't to be involved in that, uh, one of the advisers asked me about a Royal Commission, what did I think about a Royal Commission? I said, it depends on whom you appoint mm -hmm. as a Royal Commissioner. And I think they should appoint several Royal Commissioners, not just one. Mm -hmm. And there are some very strong people they could appoint. I can think of two former High Court judges, Ian Cullen and, and Michael Kirby, mm -hmm. for example, who would be ideal in that position, but they should appoint a bench of royal commissioners, but that should be done soon. This, this Morrison inquiry is ridiculous mm. and completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Now, when I, when I was younger and we had to vote, I was told where to vote. I went to a school nearby. Nowadays, thanks to the Hawke government, I can vote in 40 places in my electorate and they're not joined electronically, so I could quite easily slip in a vote 40 times in there and they wouldn't be able to trace it. They know that I had voted more than once because my name would be struck off. We, we have in Australia probably the weakest protection against electoral fraud. 
I think that's been shown in the OECD, particularly when the Morrison government, too late in its term, but only because of Pauline Harrison, tried to introduce ID voting, and the opposition came up with the insulting, the completely insulting argument that this would affect the Indigenous, as though the Indigenous people of Australia don't drive, Mm -hmm. don't have driving licences, don't go to the post office and have to produce something Mm -hmm. to get a registered parcel and so on, go to the bank and have to produce identification. One of the big issues, my question is, one of the big issues in the election was integrity. But if we don't have integrity in our elections, isn't that a fundamental problem? I, I agree, David. I think it is a serious problem. And I certainly think that people should be required to show some credible form of ID before they vote. Uh, I really do. Um, In the days when we used to uh, go and rent videos uh, uh, prior to um, (laughs) it all becoming uh, online through Netflix and things, uh, we used to have to do far more uh, to hire a video uh, than to go on the electoral roll and to vote. Uh, So... Uh, if you rock up to get on a plane, you've got to show ID. Um, if people think you might not be 18 and you turn up in a pub, you've got to show ID. Um, for a long time, we had to flash vaccine passports uh, to get into any venue. Uh, I certainly think that if we want to have the fullest confidence in our democracy, uh, we do need to put in some uh, additional simple and and easy safeguards uh, to ensure that people are not voting more than once. And registering improperly. Mm -hmm. And that's a serious issue, uh, as as you would know. Another issue that uh, touches me very much reflects on uh, the mainstream media seem to be completely opposed, and for a long period of time, to the best leaders who've been produced. They started with Reagan and Mrs Thatcher and in Australia, John Howard and you and then Donald Trump. Leaders who come from the more conservative side who turn out to be very good leaders have not only the opposition to deal with, they also have to deal with the hostile media. You had something Additional, when you became Prime Minister, you had a hostile group within the Cabinet plotting against you, planning to bring you down, and having the ability to leak Cabinet secret information to the media. The Australian even had a columnist whose principal function seemed to be to bring down the government. Now, this was appalling. The, the mainstream media and the majority, eventually the majority, in the coalition, not the coalition, in the Liberal Party, seemed to think that Turnbull would be very popular. But shortly after his accession to power, there was a by-election in North Sydney. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who Trent Zimmerman was. Mm-hmm. So effectively, the candidate, from the point of view of the electors was Malcolm Turnbull. All the electoral material showed his photograph. They didn't talk about Trent Zimmerman. And he was presented as the candidate. But in that by-election, very soon after the coup, which the media supported strongly and the majority of the Liberal Party, 
we had the result that uh, 13%, there was a swing of 13% against the Liberals in North Sydney, which demonstrated to me that that idea of uh, Turnbull being popular was uh, a correct view. David, look, I'm not wanting to get too deeply into raking over old coals, uh, but uh, I certainly agree that uh, Conservatives generally get a harder time from the media uh, than so-called progressives. I, I agree with that. Um, but, look, that just means that we have to be uh, better at our job. Mm. And, yes, I can't deny that there was a, a fair bit of leaking from my Cabinet uh, by people who wanted to see the back of me. And, yes, I've often said that uh, Malcolm Turnbull... Uh, didn't stay in the parliament to be a member of someone else's cabinet. I think he was always uh, desperate to be the prime minister. But, look, ambition is no bad thing, uh, particularly if it's ambition for a cause rather than simply ambition for oneself. And uh, so, look, it, all of that, it, 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 it is what it is. Um, I guess... Uh, the great thing about the Abbott government uh, is that it always knew what it wanted to do and, despite everything, actually got a lot done. I mean, that famous mantra that I used to repeat over and over again uh, in the build-up to the 2013 election, uh, that if you vote for the coalition, um, we'll stop the boats, we'll scrap the taxes, we'll fix the budget and we'll build the roads of the 21st century... We actually got cracking on all of those things. We did stop the boats. We did scrap the carbon tax and the mining tax. Um, we did unleash the biggest Commonwealth-funded infrastructure build in our nation's history. And while we made heavy weather of budget repair, in part uh, because of, of deliberate Senate sabotage, um, we made a very good start and... Um, on the eve of the pandemic, the budget was pretty much back to balance. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of uh, dirty water under the bridge since then, which uh, future generations will have to deal with. But, uh, but I'm very happy uh, with the record of the Abbott government. Uh, if I'd had my time again, there might have been one or two things that I would have done differently. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, on balance, I think a hell of a lot was done uh, in the two years of the Abbott government. And as I often used to say uh, of the Howard government, I used to say the longer the Rudd-Gillard government lasts, the better the Howard government will look. Mm. And I think that uh, uh, the further away the Abbott government gets, uh, the better it looks by comparison to its successes. I have another question about your government. And it relates very much to the current policy of the present government to go to 43% mm -hmm. emissions and 82% renewables by an, an astoundingly early date of 2030, mm -hmm. which, from what's been happening in Europe, will be an absolute disaster in terms of prices and the ability of people to pay for electricity and what this will do to what's left of manufacturing, but also impact on agriculture and so on. But 
This will have an additional effect on new minds and possibly on existing minds. And I was uh, drawn to, to look at your bill. You introduced a bill in 2015 to take away standing in environmental cases. Now, I don't think the Commonwealth should be involved in environment. The, the Constitution is quite clear. It's not a matter for the Commonwealth. But anyway, the, the, the Commonwealth is now involved in our environment, mm. principally because of the activists on the High Court mm. who've given the Commonwealth that power. And what your legislation would have done would have stopped environmental activists from getting involved in every case where there's a, an attempt to license a new mine so that uh, what happened to uh, what happened at Roy Hill where, where they had to get, I think, about 40,000 approvals to start the mine at Roy Hill, which so, so endows the politicians with an enormous amount of revenue. Your legislation would have stopped mm. environmental activists being able to go into court and claim standing that is the right to be involved in a law case and Malcolm Turnbull Malcolm Turnbull to his great discredit didn't take that up after the election when it lapsed mm. he could have easily put that in the bills for the double dissolution mm. if the senate had rejected it again and got it through after the double dissolution now this is a serious issue because if uh, if the Albanese government goes ahead with this we're going to find that what Mr. Bant wants will happen, that new mines will stop in Australia. Exactly right, David. Uh, it's one thing for the government to say that they're not going to ban new coal and gas developments, but the activists using the kind of lawfare which is enabled by the particular provision of the EPBC Act that you mentioned, mm. the activists will use lawfare, the busybody activists will use lawfare to effectively make new developments impossible. Uh, we saw what they did with the Adani mine in Queensland. Uh, they brought action after action after action um, and held it up for the best part of a decade. Mm. Um, poor old Mr Adani had to invest more than a billion dollars um, before anything actually happened on the ground uh, just to try to overcome uh, all of these things and good on him for staying the course uh, and really, um, it was only the 2019 election outcome uh, where the Morrison government did campaign strongly, or really Matt Canavan, Senator Matt Canavan campaigned very strongly uh, in Queensland in particular for the Adani mine. It was really only the outcome of, of, of that election which finally broke the logjam and got the thing approved. So, look... Um, I, I, like everyone, David, uh, uh, we're all conservationists now. Uh, we accept we've only got one planet and we've got to rest lightly on it. I certainly want to see emissions come down as far and as fast as possible. But legislating a particular target by a particular date uh, is going to, I think, impose massive additional costs on our economy. Uh, and yes, by putting these targets into legislation, uh, it's basically open season on fossil fuels uh, um, at the hands of the green activists. And uh, I think that's, uh, 
that's got a lot of peril uh, for our country's future. Even if you believe in the potential of man-made CO2 to affect the climate, mm-hmm. which I don't, uh, even if one believes in that, with powers like the Chinese communists producing the enormous amount of emissions they do, what is the point of a small economy doing anything in relation to reducing emissions? Quite, quite right, David. As I said, I, I'm very keen to see us rest as lightly as possible on the planet, uh, but I don't want us to engage in acts of economic self-harm and um, uh, closing down uh, our coal-fired power stations, refusing to develop further uh, gas resources uh, really is uh, an act of economic self-harm. And we are seeing the consequences in Europe right now uh, of an over-dependence on unreliable, intermittent, renewable wind and solar power. Uh, they've got to use gas um, to firm uh, the intermittent power when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. That's made them hugely vulnerable to Russia. Uh, and of course, it's sending the price of power absolutely through the roof uh, in Europe right now uh, because uh, of the supply consequences of the Ukraine war. So uh, we want to avoid being in that position at all costs. And uh, uh, I fear um, that we are going a long way down uh, this very, very uh, dangerous path uh, by legislating a 43% cut in just eight years. On another issue, if there were a strong administration in Washington, if we had a real president uh, and uh, the Beijing authorities were foolish enough to invade Taiwan and the American administration asked us for assistance, perhaps not military assistance, but allowing us to, to help them with their bases and so on, there seems to be a view among some people in Australia that we should check out that we should say no to the Americans concerning this. What's your view? The, the big question is uh, what would America do in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan? And uh, I think that uh, uh, if America does nothing, uh, the whole US global system collapses mm. because people would uh, instantly conclude that uh, America is not prepared to act to defend its friends and allies anymore. Uh, if America does get involved, uh, obviously there is the potential for the most catastrophic war of all time. So what needs to be done is to do everything we humanly can to deter any attack by China, by the Beijing regime uh, on Taiwan. And I certainly think that uh, Australia has a role to play here. Um, if it were me, I'd be talking to the Japanese government uh, under the reciprocal access agreement that the Morrison government concluded with Japan that I'd initiated and that the Morrison government concluded. I'd be talking to the Japanese government about basing some of our ships and planes in Japan, <clears throat> because that would be a signal uh, to Beijing 
that Taiwan might not be quite as alone uh, as it sometimes seems. That would be a concrete step that Australia could take uh, to send a signal to Beijing, hands off Taiwan. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. And unfortunately, time has caught up with us. But I must thank you and hope that you will come again because I think uh, Australia is missing a lot in your government not continuing. Well, David, the important thing is... Uh, to make a difference. And I worry that government throughout the Western world has become almost a performative art uh, as opposed to the business of improving people's lives uh, by taking problems uh, and actually addressing them uh, through policy change and executive action uh, that makes a difference. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for what you've done for Australia.